Oh, that's lovely. So what can I tell you about Peter Bolin that has not already been said? You know, he, when he comes in and he guest speaks here and I talk about what a great professor he is and what a great musician he is and what a great um, lecturer he is and what else? I mean, and then I call him a renaissance man because he is that. He, he's a, just in everything, just an everything man. And, and one thing I haven't said, though, was that he is an artist. He's an artist. He's an artist with his music. He is an artist with his lyrics. He is an artist with his lectures. And he is an artist with his Sunday talks. He brings us along with him on, on the narrative, on the journey of his Sunday talk so that we can come along with him and he just weaves a beautiful narrative for us. And so I'm not going to delay it any longer. Please welcome Peter Bolin. Wow, I sound pretty impressive. <laughs> I'm gonna have to check me out sometime. Thank you, that was really, really over the top. I appreciate that, Patty. I just, I'm just a person like all of you trying to do something worthwhile in this world, and I'm so grateful for the invitation to be a part of this beautiful Vision family again. So, so what I'm thinking about today is this question, and I wanted to ask you this question. Which, which Jesus do you focus on? Which Jesus do you pay attention to? The, the post-resurrection Jesus? or the pre-resurrection Jesus. You know, a lot of Christians in the world focus most of their attention on that post-resurrection Jesus. You know, Jesus as Savior, the resurrected Jesus, whose death on the cross cleanses us of our sin and saves us from our wretchedness and, and, and with all the self-loathing and personal suffering that goes along with that, uh, delivers us to heaven. Um, but increasingly, and, and obviously I'm preaching to the choir here, increasingly a lot of folks, Christians and uh, undefined people, are, are shifting their focus to that pre-resurrection Jesus, the Jesus that did not die for your sins, who isn't about damnation or salvation. It isn't about who's saved and who's not saved, but who is instead always challenging us to be better and to do better, and, 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 and gently calling us out of our default self-centeredness and encouraging us to retrain ourselves, retool ourselves, to break the unconscious habit of our obsessive self-interest and to cultivate compassion and embolden our moral action in the real world here and now, not in some mysterious hereafter. I don't think it's our fault that we're so selfish. I, I, think, I think it's just our programming, right? It's, I often have said this on the microphone. I think we're just the result of 100,000 years of Darwinian evolution where egotism and self-centeredness were rewarded. Um, I need my water. I need my food. I need my sexual partners. I need my shelter. And if I have to take it from you, I'm going to do it. And, and a, a hundred thousand years of that or so will kind of make you a jerk. <laughs> and, and now it's time, 
and, and, and then comes Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and Krishna and every other spiritual teacher, hundreds of thousands of them, most of whose names we'll never hear in rooms like this, who, who gently remind us that there is another way to be human and who gently call us to undo that, that conditioning, that self-centeredness. Because as you and I know, there is so much suffering in the world. There is so much woundedness within each of us. And that, it seems to me, is where the pre-resurrection Jesus focused his ministry and where we should focus our attention as well. You know, if you just landed on planet Earth and you scanned the Gospels, and somebody asked you, what was Jesus' job? You would just say healer. That's all he does, right? He goes around fixing people, healing people, feeding people. No doctrine, no theology, no talk of damnation and salvation. Just care. So let's just look at one parable that, support, that, I'm, that I'm offering as supporting evidence for this claim that I'm making, the claim that the real soul of Jesus' mission was the idea that we meet God most directly and most intimately through our compassionate action, not through our conformity to some theological position. And of course, I want to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's an oldie but a goodie, right? We've all heard it since we're this tall. It's really a sweet one. And I went back and I looked at it and I thought, man, is this ripped from the headlines. <laughs> so let me tell you the parable. So it's from the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus is talking with some men about religion and philosophy and all that, you know, important stuff. And a scholar of the law asks Jesus, and by the way, that's code, right? A scholar of the law, that's code for a scholar of the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. That's the, the sacred pillar of all Jewish life, called, in shorthand, the law. And so a scholar of the law goes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that whole phrase, eternal life, is really loaded. You know, we could, we could do a whole talk just on that. But let's keep it simple today. What, what do I have to do to, like, get the good stuff, you know? And Jesus says, the classic philosophy professor move here. You always answer a question with a question. Jesus says, well, what does the Torah say? Checking to see if he's done his reading. And, and how do you understand it, Jesus asks. Now, I'm kind of paraphrased for a while now. You can look it up. It's Luke 10, verse 25. So the scholar answered with that famous line from Leviticus that we all know, and it's known in Christianity as the twin commandment. Basically, love God and love your neighbor. The passage is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the answer. That's what you have to do. Jesus says, that's it. You got it. Do this and you will live. But the scholar has one more follow-up question, and it's a good question. He says, yeah, but who is my neighbor? And I'll just extrapolate. You know, is my neighbor the 
guy that lives next door to me? Is my neighbor, are my neighbors the people who have the same language as I do? Who believe in the same doctrines as I do? Are my neighbors the people who are racially aligned with my ethnicity? Um, it's a really good question. Who is my neighbor? And of course, Jesus does not answer. He says, a story. This is what Jesus does, and Buddha also does all the time. They don't like to get pushed into the corner. They get out of the trap, and they instead tell this parable. So Jesus, to that very good question, who is my neighbor, Jesus tells the Good Samaritan story. And I think you all know it. It goes roughly like this. There was a man who went on a journey, and he was walking the very dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And as so often happens on that road, he got jumped by robbers and beaten to within an inch of his life, stripped of all of his clothes, had all his property taken, and left for dead in a ditch. And along came a priest, a Pharisee, of high rank and status. And the Pharisee saw the wounded man and crossed the road and went around him to avoid him and passed him by. And then along came a Levite who also crossed the road to avoid the dying man passing him by. And then along came a Samaritan. It's like a joke, right? A priest, a rabbi, and an imam walk into a bar. There's always three. There's always three. And the first, so the Pharisee goes around the Levite goes around, and the Samaritan comes along and goes to the man to help him. And many of you know the context of this story. Look what Jesus is doing. This is a radical, seditious, anti-religious story. This is a full frontal attack on the religious institution of his time and on the religious leadership of his time. The priests and the Levites are the criminals of this story. And who is the hero? It's a Samaritan. And who are the Samaritans? It just so happens they are a tribe of people who are at war with the Jews. In fact, the Jewish community just burned to the ground a Samaritan temple. So the Samaritan is the uber-other. <laughs> and Jesus is looking into the eyes of his Jewish audience. And he's giving them this story. He says, along came a Samaritan. And the Samaritan stopped to attend to the wounded Jew from Jerusalem. He took pity on him. He salved his wounds with wine and oil. Always travel with wine and oil. Is what I, that's my takeaway from the story. A little vial of wine, a bottle, vial of olive oil. This guy's like a hobbit. He has this whole kit of stuff on him. So he salved the wounds with wine and oil, and he bandaged the wounds, and then he put the man on his donkey and took him to an inn and cared for him there that day and that night. And the next day, the Samaritan took two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have had. The end. The end. Now, when Jesus finishes the story, Jesus asks the scholar, now it's test time, right? There's the content, here's the quiz. Jesus asked the scholar, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who had fallen into the hands of the robbers? And of course, the scholar has to say, well, the guy who had mercy on him. Go and do likewise. 
go and do likewise. I'm struck by this parable when I think about the headlines, when I think about all the children in cages and the separated families, when I think about the homeless living just behind this hedge. I'm struck by this story. This is painful to be confronted with this teaching from the master. And notice how there's nothing in this story about belief or faith or doctrine or theology or fealty to institutions and fealty to institutional authorities. In fact, it is the institutional authorities who are thrown under the bus in this story. The ideal in this parable is radical, death-defying, barrier-shattering love action. And so this is a radical deconstruction of the very idea of clean versus unclean, us versus them, tribe versus outsider, citizen versus immigrant. In the radical, ethical vision of Jesus, everyone is your neighbor. In the theology of love, all boundaries, all borders, and all ethnicities are transcended, according to Jesus anyway. I'm reminded of that Thomas Merton line, you know, you don't have to wait until somebody is worthy before you love them. When you love them, you make them and yourself worthy. So when we study the Gospels, and particularly the words of Jesus himself, we see that he rarely talks about religion, except to criticize it. He rarely talks about obedience to doctrines or beliefs. Instead, he calls us to action by continually modeling for us what love in action looks like. But here's an interesting thing that happens, right? By the time we get to the Nicene Creed, by the time we get to the year 325, when the Church of Rome is establishing itself, formalizing its positions, the focus is no longer on action. The focus has now shifted. The Nicene Creed, some call it the Apostolic Creed, says nothing about what to do. It says nothing about who to be. It says nothing about how to love. It's all about the righteousness of the church, your loyalty to the church, and your fealty to its ideology. And if you check all those boxes, you're saved. And if you ask any questions, you're out. It's a fascinating shift that we go from the primacy of action to the primacy of belief in those 300 years. So in those 300 years, it's, this is how some scholars put it, Christianity devolved from a religion of loving kindness to a religion of adherence to an officially sanctioned belief system. And there are many Christians in exile from that belief system. That's how Bishop John Shelby Spong puts it. The subtitle of his book, Why Christianity Must Change or Die, is Christians in Exile. So is Christianity, and I'm using that word super loosely here, is Christianity a way of life, a way of being in the world, or is it a disembodied belief system, doctrinally pure, but divorced from the field of action? and ideologically isolated from the other tribes, at war with the other tribes. 
even within the Abrahamic family. So is meaningful Christianity about adherence to and compliance with doctrines and ideology? Or is it about how we show up in our marriages, in our partnerships, in our workplaces, in our families, or in the town square? Is it, is it about who we are or what we think? And in the last week of Jesus' young life, Jesus told his disciples, and by extension every one of us who counts Jesus as a teacher, that there is a simple test, a simple measure by which anyone can tell if you are real students of Jesus. You can't tell, how the, you can't tell who the real Christians are by, by how many Bible verses they've, they've memorized, yeah? or by how often they attend church, or by their so-called beliefs, or by how much money they give. According to Jesus, as recorded in John 13, he tells his disciples, they will know who my followers are by how well they love one another. That's it. If you are in the consciousness of loving kindness toward even the stranger, even the people that challenge you, then you're getting close. But if you live in a world of fear where everybody's divided into groups and all those groups are arranged in a hierarchy of superior to inferior, you've got a way to go, according to Jesus anyway. And so this is how Jesus in action lives on through each of us, through our loving actions, not through our words and not through our conformity to doctrines or obedience to church authorities. And again, on that last night of his life, you know, one night after dinner, when any other teacher, knowing he was going to die that week, might have launched into yet another sermon or a learned lecture, but Jesus, that night after dinner, he didn't say a word. You know this scene. It's the most haunting scene in the Gospels. After dinner, he simply grabbed a towel and wrapped it around himself, and he grabbed it a, buck of water, a bucket of water, and he got on his knees, and he washed the feet of all of his disciples and didn't say a word. That is a profound gesture of humility. And I often think of the beauty and the gravitas and the humility of that scene. And his disciples were confused. I mean, you can read in this passage, their, 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 their minds are kind of blown. They're already starting to worship him, right? And they're saying, get up, get up, get up. We should be washing your feet. They didn't know how to take it. And so once again, Jesus is teaching, not with his words, but with his actions. Here is what servant leadership really looks like. This is love in action. And like he says at the end of the Good Samaritan story, go and do likewise. Now, I think about that a lot. I'm a, a department chair in my philosophy department at Southwestern College, and I took the job very reluctantly. Nobody else wanted to do it. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'll do it. And it's not that big of a deal. It sounds more impressive than it is. Ooh, department chair, uh, believe me. <laughs> Uh, is nothing, but I do have some responsibility to kind of organize things for my full-time colleagues and my part-time colleagues, and I have all these brilliant, creative, individual people that, that 
work in that department. And I often think about management and leadership stuff. You know, I've had bad bosses. Have you had bad bosses in your life? Yeah. Oh my God, I got an amen there, didn't I? So, so, you know, the micromanager, the one that's just like over your shoulder telling you how to do this, and you're like, you know what? Why don't you just do it? And my philosophy of leadership and management is I, I'm, I'm probably a terrible boss because my only question is, what do you need? I just believe in hiring good people and getting out of their way and letting them show you how to do stuff. Because I don't know how to do anything. That's why I'm the boss. <laughs> I, I just like, you know, you guys just do your thing and let me know if you need any resources that I can help you get. And I, I, I see something powerful about that in this washing of feet story. You know, I've been reading a book by um, this amazing Franciscan friar, um, Richard Rohr. Many of you know him, R-O-H-R. Look him up, get on his newsletter, R-O-H-R. Richard Rohr has a new book called The, the Universal Christ. He's in the Catholic tradition, but he's kind of a terrible Catholic <laughs> because he's non-dualist to the core, right? He's basically a guru, a Vedanta guru in a Jesuit robe. Um, and in this book called The Universal Christ, he, 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 he says this. He says, the essential function of religion is to radically connect us with everything. The essential function of religion is to radically connect us with everything. If, you're, if your religion is dividing you from everything, take, take another shot at it. So the word religio from the Greek and Latin means to link together, like the word ligament. Religio means to link together, to bind together, to connect. So he goes on, religion, it, it, is, it is to help us see the world and ourselves in wholeness and not just in parts. And this is the line that really jumped off the page at me. He says, truly enlightened people see oneness because they look out from oneness. I'll say that again. Truly enlightened people see oneness because they look out from oneness. Instead of labeling everything as superior and inferior or in and out. You know the great line from the Talmud. We do not see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. So when you get better at entering into the consciousness of oneness, that's what you see. That I'm thinking of that line from Ralph Waldo Emerson that our opinion of the world is a confession of our character. So this is what our soul is asking for, I think. This is the longing that brings us into meditation. This is the longing that brings us into sangha like this, into gathering like this. This is what our soul wants, reconnection to the sacred, reconnection with each other, and reconnection with our own depth reality. We're all just walking each other home, as Ram Dass put it. We want to go home. It's lonely out here. So in this sense, religion is more about destabilizing the status quo than upholding it. And it's more about shaking us out of our complacency than comforting 
us and assuring us that all of our current prejudices and fears are well-founded. If your religion and spiritual life is not upsetting your paradigms, then maybe there's work yet to do. And Jesus upset the paradigms of his day so thoroughly and totally they killed him. And so sometimes I think, especially those of us who call ourselves spiritual, sometimes I think we treat our spiritual life like a medicine. Like it's just to comfort us, it's to bring us out of anxiety, it's to just to make us feel good. And I get it, you know what, you do start feeling better when you get better. But sometimes healing is a painful process too. Undoing the old ways of thinking, that's pretty disruptive. But sometimes I think unlearning is more important than learning. And this is the radical agenda, I think, of all true religiosity and all true spirituality. The great spiritual teachers that we all revere, the Jesuses and the Buddhas and the Mohammeds, were radicals and rebels who challenged the paradigms of the powerful elite of their day. And there's a message there that's so powerful. And I think that is the true mission of Jesus, the rebel. So let us now go and do likewise. Amen. Thank you. So I used, I still every now and then do a service for a pastor and 